cut it there. Cut, 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 cut! Ribbit! And cut. Cut! Cut, 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 cut! Terrific! Cut! And cut! Cut, let's try it again. Cut! And cut! 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 Check the game. Cut it! Cut! I did Welcome to Cut, just another movie podcast. I'm Annie. I'm Angie. And we're two siblings that love movies. Back to normal schedule. Last week we did a episode on our sadness of art like closing. If you haven't checked that podcast out, you definitely should. Again, we're streaming on all platforms and YouTube where we do a video podcast. This week, like I said, we're back on schedule and we're actually doing the movie Soul, Disney Pixar production. Oscar winning animated feature this is true originally we were going to do it for the academy awards for the oscars but obviously our schedule got messed up i think another reason why we chose this movie subconsciously is because in a former life we were both band kids and so it's very relatable you know the story about a band teacher trying to make it through and be frustrated with you know wanting to become a musician and not teach music um i taught high school marching band for a really long time and so I think a lot of it, I see a lot of Joe in me, um, specifically, specifically just the frustration that's building where, where he's trying to like make it, but it's never really happening. What is your first memory of uh, hearing about Soul? I think it might have been after Inside Out, like during that era. And they were saying that like the next one, the next Pixar movie is going to be about the soul. And I was like, how are they going to do that? Like, what's, what's that going to be about? Because I remember when we were, like, when they pitched Inside Out, it was like, the next Pixar movie is going to take place in the mind of a girl. And I was like, how are they going to do that? Yeah, it was pretty mind-blowing to read the concept and yeah. trying to figure out how they were going to execute it. But like you're saying, yeah, it was just kind of like, how do you in, how do you visualize emotions? But they were able to pull it off. And I don't remember hearing about Soul for a while. Like, not you know, not right after. I think I saw the teaser. And when I realized that it's like soul and jazz, it it, it was like, duh. Like, why didn't yeah. someone come up with this yeah. sooner? The way that the movie sort of plays out, I had no idea that it was going to go in that route. And that's before I had seen Inside Out. So maybe that's why. Because mm-hmm. I, I had heard the premise of Inside Out, but I had I never watched it up yeah. until recently for this podcast. And so I had no idea how it was going to kind of relate to each well, other. Well, even seeing the trailer for Soul and then watching it, there was parts of the movie that I didn't even know were going to happen. <laughs> like, there, we'll talk about it when it happens. But yeah, there was parts where I was like, oh, I didn't know that this is where the movie was going to go. Let's start off by talking about just the basic information as we usually do. Soul premiered on Disney Plus on December 25th, 2020. And obviously, the reason why it played out this way is because of COVID and the pandemic. Originally, it was going to be released in the middle of summer in June. And because, again, of COVID, Disney decided to delay it and push it back a few dates. And I'll get more to that as we go through the movie. The film was directed by Pete Docter and Kim Powers, written by Pete Docter, Kim Powers, and Mike Jones, starring Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, and has a running time of an hour and 40 minutes. Now, Pete Docter has a long history with Pixar. He started back in 1990 before Pixar was anything and slowly moved up the ranks as you usually do in a company like that. He 
created the original story for Toy Story 1 and 2, Monsters, Inc., Wally, Up, Inside Out, and Soul, his dictatorial debut was Monsters, Inc. So that was the first Pixar feature that he, he directed. And then did Up, Inside Out, and then Soul. A fun fact, Pete Docter's parents are both music teachers. So it's interesting that he had this idea but never really related it to like, oh, like I grew up with music teachers. Why didn't I do this story earlier? You know, you would think it'd be one of his first. After the success of Inside Out, Pete Doctor felt like he had hit the pinnacle, like the apex of this is the best movie that I can make. Now what? And it sort of mirrors Joe's kind of characters through line of, you know, he had dreamed of being a musician, playing a gig with famous jazz artists and but he still didn't feel satisfied and Pete Doctor felt the same way. And so he didn't really know what to do. And so um, in July of 2015, a month after Inside Out had come out, he pitched this idea, this premise of a story where a soul named Lou uh, who sees Earth but doesn't want to go down to it. He just wants to kind of hang out as a soul. Um, a new soul shows up named Clark and they both become best friends. Eventually, their friendship convinces Lou to go down to Earth. They both end up going down to Earth, and this is kind of the cheesy part. They end up being named Lewis and Clark. Yeah, I know. And so that was the initial treatment, and somehow that got a thumbs up at Pixar, and they're like, go for it. At the time, he thought the Lewis and Clark idea was a good idea, but then in retrospect, it was like, they shouldn't have those names. And so they went from uh, Lewis and Clark to 22 and 17. To this day, I have no idea why they chose those numbers as characters and especially because they kept 22. Maybe yeah. it's like a birthday or something. Um, but I think it's a much better idea than Lewis and Clark. I think so too. <laughs> the original script also began with the Big Bang originally. So they were very ambitious. By 2017, they had settled on the idea that the main character should be a jazz musician and it should, and the main character should be black. And so Doctor and his crew realized we need a lot of help because we're white right. and we need <laughs> some uh, cultural um, advice. And so they created this, what they call the culture of trust. And it's basically insiders and outsiders um, trying to figure out any problematic issues, creating the story and just making sure that they were able to avoid those issues before, you know, the final draft of the script and just the final version of the movie. Enter Ken Powers. And so Ken Powers had started as a journalist and then was a playwright. One Night in Miami started off as a play and then obviously became a, a feature-length film. And he also has written episodes for Star Trek Discovery and is also, which I was really happy to to find out, he's directing the Spider-Man 2 into Spider-Verse Part 2. Cool. Yeah, he's one of the co-directors nice. for that. Ken Powers really brought Joe's character to life. And one of the big reasons why they got him as well is because he's also from New York City. He was around the same age as Joe's character. Um, also, the idea of pursuing this dream goal of being a writer and struggling so I feel like Ken Powers really put a lot of that, his own, himself, in, into Joe. And after they had read um, One Night in Miami, the script, they were like, we got to get this guy on board. And originally, they were just going to have him as a writer. But then they saw all these great ideas that came from him and said, okay, we got to bump him up to like co-director. So that's how he became co-director. 
the culture of trust consisted of like a hall of fame of like amazing musicians, Herbie Hancock, David Diggs, Questlove, uh, John Baptiste, cinematographer Bradford Young, who was a DP on Arrival and uh, Solo. And uh, former director of the Smithsonian Institute, uh, National Museum of African Art, Jonetta Cole. So they ran all these ideas through this culture of trust, just kind of weeding through to make sure that, again, there was no problematic areas or if they needed to change certain things, they were able to change them. One of the fascinating things about this whole thing is I watched a lot of interviews with Pete Doctor. For as much as we credit Pixar of creating such a like great repertoire of films that they haven't really had that many misses, he really talks about how the way that they put a movie together is just kind of like, all right, let's get together and just like throw stupid ideas to each other. And when they brought Ken Powers in, he was shocked too that it's just sort of like, whatever idea that you have on the top of your head and just kind of go for it. And then other people will say that's stupid. We shouldn't do that. And they're very honest with each other. And again, Ken Powers really talks about how brutally them being brutally honest with each other really heightens the storytelling a lot. And that you don't really find that in many places where people are afraid to speak up or say like, that's a bullshit idea or like, maybe you shouldn't do that. At Pixar, they're very raw about their decision-making and, and just being honest with, like, that's a really stupid idea. You shouldn't do it. Another thing that Pete talks about is that when you're writing a story, you shouldn't be writing and judging a story at the same time because you're going to get nowhere really fast. And I, I, you know, creating these podcasts and just other things that I've worked on, I have a really hard time with separating the two where I'm, like, writing something. I'm like, that's stupid or, like, that's impossible or that's going to lead to nowhere. Rather than just write whatever you want and just kind of go for it. And even if it's stupid, just write it out and then take a step back and then mm -hmm. judge it. That's what Pete says that they do a lot of Pixar. And I feel like it, it really shows in their films. And um, like I said, why they have such a great repertoire of, of films and, and not a lot of uh, misses. Word vomiting out when you're trying to get something done is one of the ways that I write reviews. When I, whenever I write reviews, like I'll, I'll finish watching the thing and then I'll just kind of write everything down and then sort through it and be like, well, this is stupid. This isn't relevant. And I kind of do that with my notes for this podcast too. I'll just kind of like write a lot of stuff down and then go over it later. So, you know, when they're saying that that's how Pixar does a lot of their movie writing, it definitely shows. Going back to the culture of trust thing that you mentioned earlier, I saw one of the featurettes where they kind of mentioned what you were saying about who was in it and how that came to be. And they mentioned that one of the things that they changed was the scene where we'll talk about it later, but Joe goes and meets his mom and like you have the other two friends that are there that originally was supposed to be Joe meeting his dad and his friends. And they were sitting outside of a cafe. And when they brought it to like, you know, the culture of trust, they were like, well, that doesn't really seem authentic. Like that doesn't really seem like something that would happen. And so they changed it to Joe's mom and her friends. Right. Another idea that they were playing with was that we were never going to go to Earth. They was going to be in the great before the whole movie. And the premise was going to be all around 22, which I think 22 to me gets a little annoying, <laughs> a lot annoying after yeah. a while. Yeah. So I can't imagine a movie that it was just like all 22, <laughs> all, 22. all in the great before. Um, there's not a lot of substance there. And I think the whole idea of like going to earth kind of creates that conflict and that, um, 
do you really want to like just stay up here the whole time and not risk anything or do you want to go down to earth and actually feel things so I, I think that was a big move on their part to go down to earth and like create real drama it's a very easy way to do that one of the stories that the culture trust really responded to is herbie hancock uh told them a story about how one time he was he was playing with miles davis and this is before herbie hancock was like herbie hancock and they were at a show and herbie hancock played like the wrongest note and whatever they were playing and even as he played it he's like fuck my career's done miles (laughs) is gonna kick me out of the band like i'm fucked but what happened was that instead of miles like being reactionary to reactionary to it miles played the next chord to match herbie so it didn't sound like a mistake and so herbie it took him a lot of years to figure out why he did that and he came to the conclusion that miles instead of judging the bad chord like a lot of people would be like like that's terrible miles just took it for what it was and said oh this is a new thing i'm gonna go with it and he kind of just ran with it and so i think improv in jazz and improv in life is a big kind of mirror to each other and that's one thing that i really love about the movie and after watching it three four times like that's one thing that didn't stick out at first it took me like by the second and third viewing to realize like yeah like that's kind of what you do with your life you know you kind of shit happens and you gotta like roll make with a it. right turn yeah. and then a left turn and roll with it and come up with new ways to to uh, figure things out and, and you just kind of, it's very jazz-like, you know, it's very, very uh, in that uh, aspect. The question that we're asking with Soul is if this continues Pixar's tradition of giving us the feels. And I think most of you that are listening to this know exactly what we're talking about. The inspiration for this uh, question was on film Twitter. I don't know exactly who it was. There was um, someone who posted that maybe Pixar had figured out the blueprint of how to manipulate their audience to feel emotions over the top. And that's, I think, part of this question is like, you know, is that all that Pixar movie is? Is that just to manipulate you emotionally yeah. and, and just create these characters around that? Or is it that they're actually trying to tell a story? Watching them as a kid, like seeing Toy Story, Toy Story 2, I think, all those beginning movies, I guess it never really registered that they're pretty sad until I rewatched them as an adult. And I'm just like, Oh damn, this movie's sad. <laughs> like, cause I don't, I, I think the first movie that I remember being like, wow, this is really sad is pretty much what, when everyone started with up, that's what everyone kind of mentions is you didn't feel sad during uh toy story part two with Jesse. No, Monta- really? no, I didn't until I saw it, like as an adult, probably. But when I watched it, like I got, I get it. It, it was sad, but it, it didn't really like make me like super depressed or anything like that. That's where I realized. But like, also you were older. So you were already. That's true. Like how old were you? Toy Story 2 was what, late 90s? Yeah. So you were like already like. So I was like, yeah. Like, almost 20. Yeah. In the middle of high school. That's probably why. And then when I saw Up, I was 15, 16, 16 maybe. And I didn't cry or anything, but it was it's really sad. Like the first five minutes of it are like completely depressing, which I thought was a bold choice of Disney to start you in the dirt, basically, and then kind of build it up from there. 
not to say that this is Pete Doctor's trademark, but if you look at, I mean, he's been involved with a bunch of Pixar films, but you look at, you know, Monsters, Inc., Up, Inside Out, and Soul specifically, they all have, again, the like really hardcore emotional like montage that it's kind of a trend between those Mm -hmm. movies. Um, I think Inside Out is more in your face emotionally because I feel like every other scene is like, oh, a memory. And it like hits you with like nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, here's another memory. So it's like a very easy nostalgia machine as far as Inside Out goes. Um, And like I said, I hadn't watched it uh, before researching this podcast. But it definitely, I feel like Inside Out was like a little bit more emotional than, than Soul. In researching kind of the history of Pixar and, you know, them making everyone cry, I found an article on Cinema Blend by Philip Sledge that was the 10 Pixar movies ranked by how much they made us cry. So number 10 is WALL-E. And then number one ended up being Toy Story 3, which like, I guess, but I wouldn't call that like the sad. I feel Toy Story is the most aggressive. Up was like four. Coco was three. Finding Nemo was two, which like what? Maybe I'm not remembering it, but what's sad about Finding Nemo other than like his mom died, right? Yeah, but also your son is missing and you're trying to look for your child. I guess. No. It's because you don't have kids. (laughs) Probably, huh? We have a dog. I have a dog. Yeah. Yeah, but. What if. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need to rewatch it. That's not one of my favorites, Finding Nemo. What is your favorite? Uh, I was actually going to ask you that too. My favorite is ugh, it's between the Incredibles and Ratatouille. Okay. That's what I figured. Whenever I watch one, I'm always like, that's my favorite. And then I see another one and then I'm like, that's my favorite. And then, so I just always flip flop between the two. What about you? What's yours? Mine is Wally. The reason I love Wally is because I'm not a words person. <laughs> I struggle with words and even <laughs> speaking. Yeah. And what I love, the risky part of Wally to me is you start the first, I think, what, 40 minutes with no dialogue. Yeah. And it's just emotion, visuals. I'm a very visual person. That's how I learn. And that was also the first film that visually, I think, upped Pixar's game. They got Roger Deakins to be the DP consultant. And so that was the first time that visually, you know, they're doing rack focusing and the backgrounds are out of blur. And I think it's an anamorphic and I know that's technical mumbo jumbo for some of you guys, but that was like to see that in a animated Pixar movie, that was like, whoa, this is like a different level of, of visual. And like I said, it, it doesn't use many words to portray its emotions and what the story is about. And I, I just, I don't know. I responded really a lot to that, that it was saying a lot without saying much. There's another article um, in Forbes that's called why Pixar movies make us cry. By Danny DePlacido. I hope I said that name right. But the, the author mentions kind of how Pixar movies, like you were saying, they're almost manipulative because when you watch one, you're like, oh, shit. Well, I guess I'm going to end up crying at some point in this movie. And they mentioned that the reason they're so effective is because they're willing to explore these kind of complex emotions in a selling it to kids kind of way because it's a cartoon. And a lot of the times it's death. Like if you think of Finding Nemo, his mom dies. If you think of Onward, the dad dies. If you think of Up, spoiler alert, the wife dies. And so there's a lot of them where like somebody dies and that's not necessary. That's not something that you would normally think about being in a kid's movie. And also they mentioned that why I guess adults kind of 
are so emotionally attached to the movies and it kind of hits them harder is because you think of it as kind of losing that childhood innocence when you're exploring these emotions as an adult and it kind of balances tragedy and hopefulness. And I think that's like a really good way to describe a Pixar movie is because a lot of times there is tragedy in the movie or like someone dies or you lose your toys or whatever. And it kind of balances that without like, it makes you really sad, but then, you know, there's the hopefulness at the end for the casting of this movie. This cast is pretty much comprised of a lot of, you know, names people recognize the character of Joe is played by Jamie Foxx and Jamie was kind of their first pick because he's a musician and he could balance comedy and drama. Which I had no idea that he had majored in like classical piano. I had class- no idea either. Classical composition. I just thought he like learned because when he was Ray. Ray yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Right. Um, yeah. So we have Jamie Foxx and then we have Tina Fey is 22. We have Questlove in the cast. Angela Bassett, Graham Norton, Richard Ayoade. Ayoade. I- Ayoade? I'm sorry. Alice Braga, David Diggs, and Felicia Rashad. I think women uh, outnumber the men for the first time in a Pixar movie. So the majority of the, the voices are women. And they also, a uh, minority of the characters are white for the first time. The majority are African-American, Asian, and Latino. It's reflective of the world uh, that they were trying to build as New York City, which is true if you've ever been in New York City. It's just a mixed bag of all sorts of people. Um, on an island. Before we finish casting, Tina Fey was casted as the voice of 22 because uh, the directors had read her uh, biography. And there's a part of uh, the biography where when she was a teenager, she couldn't really make a lot of friends. But the friends that she did make, she made by making fun of other people. They would just get together and just like look at random people and just like talk shit about them. And I mean, that's kind of 22 in a nutshell. Yeah. And so reading that little uh, bio in her book, they're like, oh, that's 22. And now we start with the film. Can you guess in the beginning intro with the title card of Disney and Pixar, the band that's playing in the background, are those professional musicians or a middle school band? Professional musicians? Yes. Okay. So what happens is when you go to the classroom, that's uh, a middle school band. They're actually the Edna Brewer Middle School from Oakland, California. And originally the directors had to tell them to play worse because they sounded too good. (laughs) And so they filmed that part of the film and then they realized, oh, we should do the intro like that. But it was too late. They couldn't get the middle school band back. And they were already at Skywalker Sound recording with professionals for the actual soundtrack. And so they told the professionals, we need the intro music to match the middle school. So they got all the professionals to sound like shit. That seems like and it'd be really hard. Especially like once you figure out how to play in tempo and, yeah. and timing to tell them play not that, play the opposite. <laughs> so all the things that you've learned, you kind of just throw out the window. Yeah. I was surprised. I thought it was like they got some elementary school band to to do it because it's really convincing. But like super smart and and super brilliant that they went back and did that. There's a writing on the chalkboard of Joe's classroom. Do you know what that is? A writing? Yeah. No. This is like music. Oh. He's, what's, he's teaching the, the uh, kids. No, I don't. It's things ain't what they used to be. Composed by Mercer Ellington, Duke Ellington's son. Joe's classroom was based on a real life classroom in Queens, New York. The name of the school is MS74. But the full name is Nathaniel Hawthorne Middle School 74. 
Um, and so a lot of the details, a lot of the posters, the piano, um, all that was based around that classroom that they went to in, in Queens. As former band children, that's what it was like, you know, to be in band I mean, class, there weren't kids know? like falling asleep. No, and- definitely. Or like on their, on their phone. I was on my phone in band. And then like if you forgot your instrument, you would, you would get in trouble probably. I don't because one of them forgets their instrument. They're just like sitting. They're just yeah, like chilling. That's what I'm like, saying. like that. What? I don't think that would happen. You <laughs> I don't would, think so like, either. You would probably your homework. Yeah. I think it was like you just kind of sat there and like read or. Yeah. 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 Or did something else. And then just like the whole like the trombone kid that his slide kind of falls out. Yeah. Like that. I mean. That would happen. Yeah. I guess middle school. You're yeah. still learning. Trombone isn't really. Trombone is like where you start learning in middle school. So that's kind of accurate. It's also difficult as like a kid to play the trombone because your arms aren't that long. Right. When so you go just, to like fifth like, position Woo! and it's just like yeah, way out there. Yeah. What was the name of the, the girl that played trombone? Connie. I knew I taught a girl that dressed and looked exactly like her and played trombone. That's and she really was really funny. great. Yeah. She's a really great trombone player. But the beanie and the yeah. hair... Like the whole, <laughs> so when I saw her, it really reminded me of her. So that's, that's totally like, I feel like they based it off a kid that they How saw. How frustrating is it to teach music to kids? <laughs> you definitely have to have a lot of patience, especially like in elementary and junior, junior high. High school is like a bit easier, but um, yeah, it's sometimes it's mind blowing to me that you even learn in the first place. Totally. It's so it's there's a lot of breathing involved. And like if you're playing a reed instrument, that's yeah. like one thing. If you're playing a brass instrument, you know, buzzing in a mouthpiece. Um, it's not just about the notes. Yeah. It's partials and And then in high school you throw in marching and I think about it and I'm like, how did they get a bunch of high school kids to be able to do stuff like that? You right. know, play an instrument while running around at the right. same time and making shapes. Like that's nuts to me. I think back and I don't know how we were able to do it. And like I said, I taught high school marching band for like 20 years. And every year, like I would go back to like the middle schools and it's like their jump from like eighth grade to like ninth grade was Mm -hmm. always like mind blowing because there's still like kids and we're giving them so much responsibility and demand. Yeah. And yet they were still able to do it somehow. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. By the way, if you're watching on YouTube, Behind Manny's head, that's my trumpet. <laughs> I played the trumpet in high school. And I can still play it, actually. I was playing it before we started recording. Yeah, once you sanitize Not the mouthpieces. That. Yeah, those mouthpieces hadn't been touched in like 10 years, probably. Had some green stuff on them. What instrument did you play so everyone can know? I played three instruments. So I played, I uh, started off in clarinet in fourth grade. And then junior year in high school... I went to mellophone and then senior year I went to French horn and then dabbled in a little bit of drums, but I wasn't that great. Following the scene where he's, you know, teaching his jazz band, he, Joe gets a phone call from one of his old students. Curly. Curly played by Questlove. And Curly's like, dude, I have this gig tonight and we need a piano player and it's to play for Dorothea Williams. And Dorothy Williams is huge. So Joe's like, of course, I'm going to go and audition. And it's his dream. And it's, it's his, like dream, his dream. Yeah. Coming to life. And, you know, but he's like kind of wrestling with it because he's just got this full time job. But then he's like, uh, I still kind of want to be a jazz musician for reals. So I'm going to go. 
And the club that he goes to looks just like the Village Vanguard. The Half Note? In New York, yeah. Which is very expensive to get into. Did you know that a lot of jazz clubs started off in basements of bookstores? And that's why most of them are like... Downstairs. Downstairs. Yeah. And originally, the bookstores would have like poetry sessions and would read stories. And after late nights, then the jazz would come on. Okay. Jazz bands would play. Eventually, jazz got so popular that it overtook poetry readings. And so it would became the main thing. But yeah, a lot of jazz clubs in, in New York and, you know, in bigger cities, they were in the in the bottom basement because there were, you know, the top main floor is like a bookstore or a shop or something. And then all the jazz performances are in small, tiny spaces uh, downstairs. Do you remember what Curly's uh, T-shirt says? No, I don't. It says classic and fusion and free and modal and bebop, which are all forms of jazz. Yeah. The scene where he's going downstairs and that first shot of Dorothea playing the sax, watching it in 4K, the shimmer off the brass of the sax, Mm -hmm. it's like the closest thing to real life I've ever seen. Yeah. The animation in this film is just, it, it, I think it overtook Wally for me as like my favorite animated Pixar movie. The lighting is incredible. Yeah. Um, the textures on the characters and, and just, again, them playing their instruments is just like beyond top notch. And like, that's, that's one thing that like really stood out to me, um, when I was watching it, Terry Lynn Carrington was the main inspiration behind Dorothea. Terry is a jazz drummer, composer, producer, and educator. She's played with the likes of Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, Herbie Hancock, just to name a few. Uh, Terry became a band leader herself and knew you had to be tough. And so I think that's where Dorothea's toughness like mm-hmm. comes out um and especially being a woman you know I had never heard of Terry before you know and that's one of the things that I was wondering is like that was cool to have a woman band leader because you don't yeah. really think of jazz and female band leaders yeah to find out Terry's musical ability and her history playing with all these jazz greats like that was like something really cool that I thought was like a good thing that Pixar did Dorothea was voiced by Angela Bassett which when I think of Angela Bassett now I think of her in Mission Impossible. Same. And no, so like I think of her in Mission Impossible and American Horror Story. Well, I haven't seen American Horror Story, but that makes sense. Yep. But I just think the scene where in Mission Impossible Five where she's talking to Superman, just as Dorothea. Yeah. Like that's all I could think of when I was watching that scene. Now I'm gonna talk about the jazz music, which is obviously a big part of the film. Uh all the jazz music is played on Earth. And so anytime we're on Earth, it's mostly jazz music that was written by John Baptiste, who we all know is the leader of uh, John Baptiste and stay human from late show with Stephen Gobert. But John Baptiste was originally from new Orleans and he actually went to Juilliard and it was like one of the first, he, he talks about how there were seven generations of his family that uh, took for him to get a master's in, in music. He had other uh, musician, I think he had an uncle and his dad were musicians and I think they went to college, but he was like the first in seven generations to, to receive his master's and to leave New Orleans, you know, mm-hmm. to go to the big city to, to achieve that. He got inspiration for the music from a lot of jazz legends, including Roy Haynes, Harvey Mason, Bradford Marcellus, Kenny Kirkland, Charlie Parker, uh, and the Headhunters. The song at the end of uh, the credits, It's All Right. 
he arranged a new version and that that was originally by the impressions. Originally, kind of like Ken Powers, John Baptiste was going to be like a one done deal where he was just going to write the music and that was it. But he was so talented and he had so much to say about gigging and being a musician that they started picking his brain about, you know, what is it like to go from job to job when you're struggling? You know, what does that feel like? And so he started talking about differences of like playing by yourself versus an ensemble. And so in this scene, when they're, when Joe's playing with Dorothea for the first time, you really see the attention to detail that the animators did. And actually John, uh, John's hands are really Joe's hands. He has really long fingers. And so they replicated that um, with that performance and just how you play off each other when you are an ensemble. And I think you get that feel of, uh, going from Curly to the bass player to Dorothea to John. Um, and then that's also some of the most realistic playing I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, like, it really period. is. And that scene actually made me really nervous as I was watching it because, you know, he's auditioning and then Dorothea is kind of like, she plays her thing and then she just like stops. And she, then it's his turn to play. And I was like, oh shit, if that was me, I'd be like, I don't, I don't know, know what, what I'm doing. Play. Yeah, like, because I was so bad at improvisation when I was in the band. Like, I still can't even tell you how to do it. But you mentioning that John Batiste was more than an inspiration pretty much for Joe in the first scene that we were talking about where Joe's, you know, teaching in band class and he kind of tells him about the first time that he went to a jazz club. That was a story that John Batiste told Pete Doctor and I guess the rest of the musicians that were making the music. And they liked it so much that it's pretty much almost verbatim the story that John Batiste was telling. And they liked it so much that they just included it in the movie. John also talks about how Talent is just one tiny piece of the puzzle. To be a successful jazz musician, um, there's a lot more to that. And later on in the movie, when Joe, you know, gets a new suit and gets a haircut, Batiste talks about that in that it's like your look is just as important as your playing skills. And so you have to like represent yourself visually and tell people like I'm the business, like I'm the real deal. And so a lot of the look of of Joe when once he gets the new suit and um does the gig for real uh comes from that conversation that doctor had with Baptiste and like you know you gotta you gotta dress the part essentially they use 35 gopros to capture all the real life jazz musicians playing those parts and so they were in a studio and not just with john Baptiste, but like the drummer uh the bass player a saxophone player they pretty much set up all these gopros everywhere so they could capture every angle to be able to animate and so i think like i was saying earlier the animation of them playing is like some of the best you'll ever see. So th- that it really explains like their attention to detail and trying to grab every angle that they could from these musicians and trying to get that performance all the way down. Do you remember as a musician or as a performer being in the zone or getting in the zone? I remember being in the zone, not so much one when I was playing, but when I was marching, I remember being in the zone marching Mm -hmm. not really while I was playing because like I said I wasn't really improv I I never did improv because I didn't really understand how I still don't understand how but maybe if I did then I would be in the zone but definitely marching band definitely in the zone and then when I was the drum major also too would you like agree that the visual representation is what it feels like when you're like kind of in the zone I don't know not for me really like I would think of it more as like hyper focus 
like tunnel vision, not like tunnel vision, like you're going to faint, but just like a hyper focus, not necessarily, you know, the colors and all that stuff that's happening. Maybe again, if I was playing music and improv and stuff like that, then yeah, totally, probably. But because I think it was so technical, what I would be in the zone with, it was more just like a hyper focus. What about you? Yeah, I don't think it's like color, like you don't see colors. But what I do remember is time. It's almost like in a dream. Mm -hmm. You're in a dream state where everything's sort of muscle memory and automatic. And what took 10 minutes in real time feels like only took like two minutes. I remember it's almost like being hypnotized. Yeah. And like I said, you start the performance and by the end of it, you're like, what just happened? Well, yeah, especially during marching like shows, marching band shows is when that would happen because the shows would be like 12 minutes long and then you would get on the field and you'd be like, oh, fuck, it's over. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, it's all that work, all that um, practice. And yeah. it felt like it would happen like in an instant. And so like when he goes in the zone, I can kind of it sort of takes me back to that a little bit. It kind of does, though, feel like you're like in a different part of uh, consciousness. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit like I feel like and even sometimes when I've been on shoots, when I've been shooting live concerts Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, weddings or or things where it's like you're capturing a moment and you get one shot at it. You're like you said, you're so hyper focused on it that the rest of the world doesn't matter. and You're just like there. And it's. And so, yeah, in a way, it does feel a little bit transic, but um, I think they did a really good job of, of representing that and di- on different levels because later on in the movie, he goes back to the zone. Um, but I thought it interesting that they put that in the movie because it's something that I don't think I'd ever seen in a music movie before where they get into this like zone um, moment. So the audition goes really well for Joe. He gets the gig. And he's like super happy about it. He goes on his cell phone and he's taught. We can't. Is he talking to his mom or a friend? Because I don't know if they explain oh, it. Oh, I, I don't. I don't think it's his I mom. Think I think it's, it's a buddy. I think it's. Yeah, a probably. Yeah. And he's like avoiding all these near death experiences yeah. like with like stuff falling on top of yeah. him. And then there's like bananas everywhere yeah. and stuff like that. And then he falls into the sewer. And my question is, would falling into a sewer kill you? That was also my question. Um, I guess it depends how you land. Like maybe he hit his head. Like if you land on your legs and then you go back and then hit your head on the concrete, that could totally kill you. Also, smartphones are evil because if smartphones didn't exist, (laughs) he would have still been alive. Or if they closed up manholes in New York, you know, (laughs) not leave them open. True. But you know what it reminds me of? But I mean, I feel like we've all been in those moments where something great happens or you're distracted by something and then you just eat shit. (laughs) One memory that I have of this is I was going to a Dodger game and I was getting gas. And for whatever reason, I think I just had, I went inside to pay. I didn't pay on the machine. And so at the gas station where I go, like I've been to it that I sort of, well, I thought I knew it like the back of my hand. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking down at my wallet, going to get my ATM out. And you know how there's a little ramp for people in wheelchairs or or, Mm -hmm. um, can't jump the curb. So I'm thinking I'm about to like go up the little ramp and I just hit the the curb. Yeah. And it was those moments where you're like stumbling (laughs) and you realize halfway, no, I'm going to hit the ground. There's I can't reach out or anything. Yeah. And I ended up falling like on my right side, just like 
just completely just ate it. Eating it. And then I'm like there on the ground, more humiliated than in pain. <laughs> and there was a guy that was like across. And there was a moment where like, I remember there was just like no sound. And then the dude that saw me fall, I was like, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm just like laying there, not because I'm in pain, but more of like, I can't believe that just happened. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm all right. I just need a second. And like, it took me like a minute to like oh get up and God. like feel less embarrassed. I think falling as an adult is like terrible, completely humiliating. But also like, I remember as a kid seeing adults fall was like the weirdest shit I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that was weird. Seeing that scene reminded me of just the times where that's happened where like, yeah, just fell and obviously not into like a manhole or anything. So Joe falls into the manhole and then he falls into a place we don't know what it is, but essentially it's the great beyond and is this big escalator that's leading into this white light that we don't know what it is. And he's trying to figure out like where he is, like what's mm -hmm. happening. And then he runs into three souls that we find out later. And one of the women says, this beats my dream about the walrus. And it's actually a woman from a tribe in Northern Alaska. And she's actually speaking in Inuktitut. Okay. Inuktitut. I'm uh -huh. butchering that. But basically it's her native language. Oh, okay. And that was like the first time. Oh, nice. That had been uttered in a, I think in an animated film. Yeah. But I think the way that whole scene sets up is like hilarious. Um, and then Joe is like, I'm not going to the great beyond. <laughs> I'm going to fight this. And so he goes against, against the stream. And then he finally hits that wall. And that's when he goes into black and white. Mm -hmm. And there's a little homage to 2001, A Space Odyssey, yeah. the, the Stargate sequence. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I think it's around the 12 minute mark this happens. And then you see a Disney presents a Pixar Animation Studio title cards. Mm -hmm. And then he falls into the great before. Yeah. But there's no soul. He just falls. There's no like soul title card. Oh, Did interesting. Did you notice that? No, I just. And I went back and rewound it two or three times. But it's two title cards just setting it up. Yeah. And so then he just falls and he's like looking up yeah, at yeah, the yeah. great before. But there's no soul until the credits. That's when you see the title card of soul. Unless I miss something. But hmm. I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah, yeah. that that's what happened. When P. Doctor was kind of talking about the design of like, how do we design the afterlife essentially? When like, A, we don't know what it looks like technically. And B, how do we make it so it's like not, doesn't have any kind of religious connotation, kind of like a generalization of the afterlife. And I think they did a good, I, I imagine an escalator too. So, or like stairs or something. Um, yeah. So I think they did a good job with. But I really appreciated that, that idea that there's no religious tie-ins yeah. to any of this yeah, where yeah. it could have easily been that. And yeah, they're like broad strokes that you can relate to different religions. Mm -hmm. But overall, there's no like, there's a higher power here. Yeah. There's, you know, and even when he says H-E double hockey sticks <laughs> yeah. and they're like, hell, hell, hell. And I guess the most times they've said hell in a... That's really the only yeah. like religious like yeah. uh, spe specific moment. But other than that, it's just kind of like the great beyond and the great before. But, you know, you can, it's not relying on any specific religion. Once we hit the great beyond musically, this is a big change. Yeah. And this is where Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross come in. 
Um, the way that Pete Doctor was able to get these guys to do the music, which I always wondered because it seemed like, how are you going to make a movie about jazz and then think of Atticus and Trent? Yeah, right. Like on paper, it doesn't seem like it would work, but obviously it, it worked really well. So Ren Kleiss, who's the sound designer, who was also the sound designer on Inside Out, um, Ren and uh, Pete were having lunch and Ren Kleiss has been the sound designer on a bunch of David Fincher movies. And so just out of a whim, Pete was like, hey, do you think Atticus and Trent would be down to do a Pixar movie? He's like, I don't know, man, but you can ask him, I'll ask. <laughs> yeah. And they were up to it and they had a meeting and Pete gave them the idea of what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And at first they didn't really get it. But I think as they brought up jazz and the idea of a struggling musician and intertwining it with, you know, your soul, what you're meant to be doing. I think that clicked with him and they were like, all right, let's do it. And so all the music that you hear in the great beyond um, is all Atticus and Trent. And it's again, very, it's ambient. It's um, I mean, I can meditate to it all day. Ethereal. um, All of that, which, which is what you would expect from, from both of them. Going a little bit back to that limbo space that you were talking about, that that sequence is really cool when he kind of is falling in the limbo space between the great beyond and the great before. And they actually called that bit, like the, the writers and the animators, they called it the Trevorverse because the guy that boarded the scene is Trevor Jimenez. Okay. And so they just called it the Trevorverse. And kind of when he was thinking about it, he was thinking about kind of facing the awe at the end of your existence. And that's kind of how he described the scene. And it works really well as a transition between the beyond and the before, I think. Atticus and Trent began writing the music even before the picture locked. Now, if you don't know what picture lock is, the way that music is composed for a feature film is the film is edited. And so like saying, you know, um, like Star Wars, you know, the film is edited. And then John Williams gets the edited film and says, okay, now write to this. It's not like John Williams writes all this music and then they edit it to his music. It's the other way around. And so that's why I feel like composers, maybe minus John Williams, never get the credit that they deserve <laughs> because they're so constricted. Like yeah. you have maybe, you know, two minutes to create this sort of emotional roller coaster with music and then you're on to the next scene and yeah. you don't have, you know, the composer can be like, I need another like minute and a half. <laughs> But you can't get it because yeah. that's just the way that it's edited. And so when you lock the picture, you're not going to change anything else. However, Atticus and Trent started when they were storyboarding the movie and just throwing ideas. So they were just writing music to whatever they wanted to do. So it was like completely backwards to the way movies are, are scored nowadays. And so they would write cues uh, while they were writing the story and they would tighten and loosen those cues. So what I was talking about where it's like, hey, I need two more seconds. Yeah. They were able to get it. But then um, once the film began to come together, they had to reduce, reduce, reduce. The sound designer, Ren, took the approach that what you're hearing isn't just your physical surroundings, but it could also affect you emotionally. So it fits with the ambient style of, of Trent and Atticus. And... Um, and it meshed really well. So a lot of the times, sometimes you're listening to Atticus and Trent, but it's really the sound designer coming with some musical cue. And then when you think it's ambient, it's really Trent and Atticus coming up with something that matches. So it's like yeah. the marriage of the two 
um, worked out really well. Uh, by the end of scoring that part of the, the film, Trent Reznor claims that they composed music for enough for six films. That's how much music they were sort of like throwing back and forth that, mm-hmm. that Pixar didn't use. I don't know if it's six films, but I'm sure there is a lot of music that they didn't use because like I said, they started like very early in the process and we're just like, let's just, you know, they insert 22 is running. Yeah. yeah, And that's as much information as they got. And then they would just go to town and try to write for that. When they were designing the great before, which is also incredibly difficult to imagine probably because you're like, okay, we have to design the world before souls meet their human counterparts. And you're just like, I don't know how to even, I wouldn't even know how to start. And so they kind of described it as like edgeless, kind of soft, you know, not without any like hard shapes necessarily. Everything kind of just folds on itself really. Like when they're looking, I think when Joe's looking around, he sees one of the buildings, the buildings, And it like breathes and like expands and then it kind of just like goes back. And what they looked at was a lot of like world fairs like back in the day and like the crazy buildings that they would have. And that was the inspiration for a lot of the buildings that you see in the great before is like all these sculptures that they would have in world fairs. When they were designing the great before, they wanted it to be nonspecific to any culture. Kind of like I mentioned the great beyond nonspecific to any religion, to any culture. And it's, I think they did a good job because it's just like, like the colors in it are kind of, you can't really describe the colors either. It's just all kind of like all colors everywhere. Yeah. And it's also stuff that you don't see on earth. And I'll bring up a point about that in a bit. And so when they were designing the souls first, they kind of started with a spectrum, like a rainbow kind of spectrum. And they kind of went from there, which is why they have this like weird kind of glow to them. And then with the Jerry's, the design of the Jerry's, they kind of started with drawing them as like one line to do the whole shape. And then an artist created them out of like wire sculptures. And that's kind of how they got the design. And the artist was Deanna Marziglese. I probably didn't say her last name wrong. I'm sorry. But yeah, she was the one that illustrated them and, and kind of shaped these little wire sculptures, which I hadn't even thought about until I watched it. And I was like, oh, of course, that's a wire sculpture. Like, And it's also like wire sculptures are like two dimensional, but 3D at the same time. Yeah, especially if you like shine a light on them. Or if you rotate them. Yeah. Did you know that because they thought, oh, well, it's just lines. Yeah. They'll be really easy to animate. They were the second hardest thing to animate in Pixar history. Second only to Hank from Finding Dory, which was the octopus. Oh, and because of all the tentacles yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. ridiculously hard. But that's hilarious to me that the Jerry's were like the, the second lights. hardest thing when it looks so <laughs> yeah, easy, yeah. so so basic to, yeah. to animate. Keeping in line with talking about the Jerry's, Jerry's are the representation of the universe dumbing itself down to guide the new souls. And so if not for the Jerry counselors, the new souls would just sort of never go down to earth. So like you have the Jerry's that are pushing the new souls to, to go down to earth and make something of themselves. If you notice on the, they call them the noob souls. So souls that haven't gone down to earth yet. Um, they have purple eyes, which I, it took me two, three viewings to even notice that. Yeah. And if you look at Joe, Joe's like, uh, has glasses and has, has a hat, hat and is, looks more like a human than the, than the noob souls. And the reason why they went with purple eyes is because they wanted to find something pure, something that you couldn't, that hasn't been tainted by going down to earth. Yeah. And no one on earth, 
organically has purple eyes. And yeah. so they went with purple. And also that's why they're just kind of orbs. And they have hands when they need to do something. Yeah. But they're just not defined as as humans. Yeah. You know, yet. Will we ever reach a day where orientation films in movies don't look like old VHS tapes? Because it's <laughs> it's rampant yeah. everywhere. It made me really think about Lost. The Dharma tapes? Yes, yeah. the Dharma tapes. The voice of that Jerry in the orientation film is Wes Studi, which is, he's probably the most famous Native American actor of mm-hmm. all time. And one of the things that we talked about a little bit is how it's like, it's an international cast. and Yeah. You have Alice Bragas, one of the the Jerry's, uh, Richard Ayoade, and Zenobia Shroff. I think those are all the Jerry's. Yeah. I may be missing one. But you have, again, the idea that the Jerry's are just kind of this being and there's no definitive, like, they have one singular accent because yeah. I think they tried doing that and it just didn't read well. They wanted it to be like different entities or what, like a singular entity, but not really be specific. And so I think that's one of the reasons too why they went with various voices for, you know, and calling them all Jerry's. We get to the moment where Joe takes the identity of a psychiatrist. Everyone was Do- Dr. Or Borgenstein or something, something with yeah. a B. And so they team him up with 22, who's the soul that's been around for eons and hasn't wanting to go down to earth. And, um, and so they get put together because Joe's avoiding trying to go to the great beyond. It's like, you either be a mentor or you go to the great beyond. He's like, Oh, I'll be a mentor. And they go to, uh, what's supposed to be Joe's life, but it starts off with the doctor's life. And then there's a point where, uh, Joe tells 22 is like, is there a way to like put my thoughts, my memories? And then he scans his like hand and then it's like Joe's life. Joe realizes like, wow, I've just kind of wasted my life because (laughs) like, he's like, there's a memory of him just watching TV and not really doing what he's been wanting to do, which is like be a professional musician. And he just thinks it's a waste of time. And there's that scene with uh, your boy, David, where he's like, uh, I think it's Cedric's rap group. Yeah. 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 There's that little snippet of audio. Yeah. Then we get to 22. And can you list off like all her mentors? God, or no. Or most of them? It was like Mother Teresa, um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, there was a like a philosopher, but I can't remember who it is. Copernicus. Copernicus. God. Yeah, Copernicus. And then there uh, was Muhammad Ali. Yeah, that's right. This is Marie Antoinette. <laughs> Carl Jung. Archimedes. And then George Orwell. And then there's a scene too later on where you see all the mentor stickers on, on her, like on her, her room. wall. But yeah. I didn't pause it to yeah, read. But I saw those that are the too. ones that I can I can remember. When Joe becomes a mentor, they kind of walk him through what being a mentor is and kind of how souls get to earth. And basically what you have to do is kind of mentor the soul until they get their pass, like their earth pass. And once they get an earth pass, they can go their to earth. spark. Yeah, their spark. And so the thing with 22 is that she's been so annoying that people just kind of ditch her like her mentors. And also she hasn't found her spark. Like she's looked at everything and nothing really kind of interests her. But then I feel like later you just kind of realize that she just doesn't want to go to earth. And that's why nothing interests her. 
So they go to the Hall of Everything, which has everything like musician, uh, sports, pizza, pizza, baking, like it has everything. And that's where the mentors take the soul so that they can find their spark and get their earth best and go to earth. That's another one of my favorite moments where she's trying out. He's like, meh. All of them. But then the music cuts. Yeah. And then it's like, it picks up where that's not. And then it cuts. Yeah. And the soundtrack, when I was listening to it, 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 they use that cut. It just cuts (laughs) off. And you're like, wait, did my phone stop playing? That's what it like. But yeah, that's one of my favorite Yeah. And she's like president and like an astronaut and she's baking. Firefighter. Firefighter. And yeah. So yeah, that's a really funny. And then was it the librarian? She's like, oh, I I would love to tell people to To stop talking to shush. Yeah. It's like, oh, I like that. And so they go to the Hall of Everything to kind of try and find 22 Spark and they can't. And then uh, one of the Jerry's comes is like, well, since she can't find the Spark or 22 can't find the Spark, uh, then it's off to the great beyond and then 22 go back to your thing. And then that's the turning point, I think, where 22 realizes after seeing Joe's life that 22 wants to help Joe. Yeah. And says, oh, no, no, but we didn't try. What was it like? Breakdancing. Breakdancing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I really think that's going to be my spark. And so they buy some time and she's like, oh, come in here. And it's a box. And this is like, uh, what does the box say? It's like enter here or like this is a, it's, I think it just says this is a box. Something like that. Yeah. And they go in and it looks like that's where like 22 lives. Yeah. And they have those uh, mentor tags that I was talking about. And then they keep going. And then out of the other opposite end of the box, they go into the zone. They're introduced to, what's his name? Moonwind. Moonwind. Graham Norton. He's driving this like psychedelic boat over sand. Bob Dylan's playing. Bob Dylan's playing, which was inspired by kinetic sand, like the sand that they're driving over, which totally makes sense. And I love kind of the, the, when he's describing the zone, and it kind of goes to that montage of people not being in the zone. And there's like the lady reciting Shakespeare and then she forgets. And then there's like the Knicks playing. And Which I have a big note not I to was interrupt. Like, they- <laughs> this was Ken Powers' favorite joke he wrote in the movie because he's from Brooklyn. He's a big Knicks fan. And the idea that, you know, that 22 is responsible for the Knicks sucking. Yeah. I think the last time they won an NBA <laughs> championship was 1975. And in the commentary, Kim Powers is like, no team should have to struggle for as long as the Knicks have. And um, I thought that was, that was brilliant. Yeah, I thought that was a really good joke too. So he describes the zone and he's like, you know, when you're in the zone, well, this is where it is. And then they're like, well, what do you do that has you in the zone? And it just flashes to him being like a sign guy, (laughs) which is like the best because I've seen guys waving signs that are totally in the zone. zone. And you're just like, wow, that guy's really good at twirling that sign. Right. Talking about the zone a little bit more. And I didn't even realize this until I heard the commentary, but being into something and being so into something is almost the same thing. Because if you think about it, like an obsession, you sort of like get tunnel vision Mm -hmm. and you block out the rest of the world. So when they get into talking about what a bad soul is, that can mean that you're so into something kind of like Joe that you sort of get isolated yeah. and are just so obsessed with what you're into that you forget about the rest of the world, which is also not a very good thing. And so I thought that was interesting too, in that in the real world and in, in everyday life, we always think about people that aren't doing things as bad or as like, Oh, you're being lazy. Yeah. That's terrible. 
but we don't necessarily think about people that are so obsessed with like a certain subject or so into, you know, gaming, mm-hmm. movies, music, that that's all they think about as a negative, yeah. you know, and it's equally as, as bad as someone that is just, I'm not into anything at all. Going back to talking about if we've ever been in the zone, this is going to sound really sad. But when I used to barista at Starbucks, morning shifts as a as the being on bar. So when you're on bar in Starbucks, that means you're making all the drinks. Morning shifts from like 730 to like 10. That would be an in the zone moment when you were like barring and you were just like not paying attention to anything and you just get straight tunnel vision and you're just focusing on whatever 20 drinks you're making at once. That's the time that I can remember being like in the zone to where I look up and it's like 11 and I'm just like, oh shit, I started at like five. Where did the time go? Where did the time go? Yeah. And so that was always my favorite part about working at Starbucks is making drinks during a rush time because then you would just lose track of time completely and then just be done. As the ship is sailing through the zone, there's these like bubbles and hills in the background. One of the original ideas that they had was that in those bubbles would be people's dreams. And that was originally going to be the idea of how Joe went back to earth is that through someone else's dream, he would kind of infiltrate their dream and then like get back to earth. But they eventually didn't go that route and obviously went the, um, the spirit guru, you know, uh, was it the, the, um, the thin spot, Mm -hmm. which we'll get to in a bit. My favorite line of Moonwind is when he's like, I was a lost soul. And then he, and then they're like, "Oh, what was it?" He's like Tetris. <laughs> yeah, but the delivery yeah. of yeah. Graham Norrell when he says Tetris is just—it's brilliant. So talking about the thin spot, the thin spot actually comes from an Irish idea that there is a place in the world that you feel closer to the eternal. It could be a restaurant, a park, any place where you felt a connection to another world. And so I think we can all relate to that. You know, mm-hmm. having a place that we really look forward to going to. And just feeling a grander connection to it for whatever reason. Um, I thought that was, you know, a brilliant idea as well as, as like the dream idea of like that. There's yeah. like certain spots on the planet where you can somehow reconnect to a different part of the, the world or mm-hmm. a different, you know, plane, if you want to call it. So when they talk to Moonwind, they're trying to get back to Joe's body pretty much. And Moonwind shows them what he does with lost souls basically and he helps them kind of find their purpose in life again but then moonwind realizes that joe's not a lost soul he just wants to get back to his body and so they do their little ritual thing but they kind of jump the gun joe jumps the gun like as soon as he sees his body he sees himself in the hospital and he's like oh that's my body we gotta go and then moonwind is like no 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 it's not ready yet like we haven't completed the ritual yet so Joe and 22 fall to earth. And this is the part that I wasn't expecting in the movie because I didn't even know that this was going to, and I'm surprised that it didn't even get spoiled for me. Like I didn't see anything about this. They wake up, Joe wakes up in the hospital and he realizes that he's staring at his own body. And so he's like, wait, I'm, I'm not in my body. What is, and then like he waves his hands and their paws. And so he realized that Joe fell into like the therapy cat and 22 falls into Joe's body. So now we have like a body swap movie. The creators were really worried about that. And specifically for a a black lead character. Yeah. There have been other films where this happens and where like you start off as a black character and then something happens where they're not. And 
originally with the teaser trailer, there was criticism of that because I, I think that. there is a mention that there is a body swap, although I don't remember hearing about it. I don't think so. I think what I had heard about the teaser was that they were like, it's the first uh, animated feature for Disney with a black lead and you're just going to make him into a faceless being for the whole movie, meaning right. like Soul Joe. Yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of what I expected it to be was like he dies and he's just a soul trying to find his way back to his body for the whole movie. And so this was an interesting kind of change. Like you, I wasn't expecting the whole body swap thing. And even after watching the movie three or four times, it's still a weird moment for me. But I also understand story plot wise why they did it. And it's also one of the reasons why the creators were aware of it. And they kept Joe and 22 together, not having him go their separate ways, because that's probably what you would expect is like, okay, a body swap. And then now they're going to diverge and then eventually come back together. But in the rest of the movie, yeah, there are moments where like Joe tries to run away, but it's like seconds when they're apart. And so it was important for them to be like, okay, no, they're going to stay together even though they're, you know, they're, uh, their bodies have switched. Can you name some of your favorite body swapping movies? No. No? I've, uh, no, I can't even, like, not Freaky Friday. Yes. Nah. Um, I, I think the movie Freaky, I'm going to like. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. The horror one. Uh, why can't I think of it? I can't. Face Off? Face, oh, I've never seen Face Off. Big. Meh. 13 going on 30. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good Ruffalo. one. Mark Ruffalo. That's yeah. a good one. 13 going on 30. My favorite, Dream a Little Dream. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's probably my favorite. Joe and 22 are escaping the hospital. And the whole sequence with them getting out of the hospital and just the body gag of like yeah. 22 doesn't know how to like <laughs> work a body and all that. And then the elevator gag too and the, uh, where they're, he takes the glasses off and then like and then Joe's like the reflection off the glasses like he's like chasing yeah. like a cat and stuff like that. All super great. But my favorite part is when they get out of the elevator and they go into the streets of New York. That it goes from like handheld to like a white light and then it's just like you're hit with like the streets of New York City. Yeah. That looks like straight up like someone shot that. I mean, yeah. it's obviously animated yeah, and yeah. you can tell it's animated, but the camera work and the lighting, mm-hmm. it just blows me away every time I watch I it. I really like that scene because they get all the sensory overload of New York City, the right? sounds. Just like, you're just like, oh my God. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like for the very first From time. From nothing to New York City. You're just like, shit. You How know? overstimulating it yeah, is. Yeah. And even like, yeah, going from the hospital to the streets, you're just like, oh my God. Like there's so much sound everywhere. There's people everywhere. So I think they did a really good job with kind of getting you to feel that sensory overload. And so 22 at this point kind of freaks out and wants to run away. And like I was saying, this is probably one of the small moments where they do separate. But then Joe as a cat goes after Joe and... Joe or, or well, I'm getting my <laughs> my people mixed up Cat Joe. after 22 and he's like in a corner of a building is like, I'm just going to wait here till your body dies or something yeah. like that. And then also because like your stomach is like growling, growling. Yeah. 22 or Joe, <laughs> Joe cat as Joe. a cat, cat Joe <laughs> realizes, oh, there's a pizza place. And so he steals a slice of pizza. And then as 
uh, Cat Joe's about to give it to 22, there's a mouse that's dragging pizza the rat. pizza. <laughs> Originally, they wanted Cat Joe to drag the pizza and then have 22 Joe eat it. Oh, okay. But after the previews, they were like, that's disgusting. Why would you? <laughs> it's pizza. Pizza's yeah. fucking amazing. Yeah. But why would you want to eat it? Off the ground. And so they rewrote it and had the the rat gag go go That's by. That's funny. And then another one of my favorite musical cues is the moment Joe takes a slice of pizza and you hear that high trumpet hit that note. Yeah. And it's just like. Just like good pizza. Again, one of those moments how you were talking about your first time in New York. Imagine yeah. like the first time Having eating a pizza? slice of pizza. Totally. Having that be the first thing you eat ever. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Can you think of all the other things that 22 Joe eats? They eat a gyro, gyro, uh-huh. gyro, gyro. Um, they eat the lollipop, bagel. Is that it? And I think in the, like another slice of pizza. Yeah, 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 yeah. All New York things. All good New York things. So after 22 in Joe's body eats everything, they go searching for Moonwind at the corner. I forgot what. it's 14th and 7th? 14th. Mm, I don't think so. Anyway, they go <laughs> they go seek him out at the corner where he works, like twirling his sign. And they find him and they basically come up with a plan to meet at 630 so that because can, that's when the stars align. Yeah, perfectly something like that and, so that they can switch back to their right. bodies and Joe can get to his gig. Yeah. And that's also some of the best animation with Moonwind and how he's gyrating. His yes. Body. Oh, my God. It's so funny. That's really good. Yeah. So we get to Joe's apartment and. It's probably one of my favorite settings in the whole movie, probably next to the barbershop because Joe's apartment's so dense with a lot of cool stuff, a lot of artwork. Um, one of the artwork pieces that they that is in his apartment, they had to get the rights to. It's called the Banjo Lesson. And it's actually Ken Power's favorite pieces of art. Um, and it's an older black man teaching a kid how to play the banjo. And he's sitting on his lap. Um, the original is at the University Museum at Hampton University, so they had to ask him for the rights to to use it. But there's also books by Nina Simone and Martin Luther King, as well as a plethora of stuff in his like shelves that I really recommend everyone if you if you can slow it down, go frame by frame, really look at his apartment because it's it's really dense with a lot of cool stuff. So Cat Joe and Twenty Two Joe. <laughs> is are trying to come up with a plan and there's a knock on the door and it's one of Joe's students that wants to quit playing trombone. It's the the girl that is playing trombone. And that's when there's a shift with 22 because obviously 22 has to deal with her. And there's a the scene where she opens the door and she's like, oh, I want to quit. And he's like, jazz is useless. And then 22 is like, yeah, you're right. Jazz is useless. It's like, <laughs> wow, you're really smart. And then... uh it's school's terrible too. And then she goes off the George Orwell quote yeah. of like state sponsored education is like a rattling of a stick inside a swole bucket and just goes off on this tangent of how like a public school is terrible. Yeah. And they have this really great moment where the girl is about to quit and she says, but wait, let me play you this thing that I've been working on one last time. And then you can tell me to quit. And that's when 22 even though 22 said in the great before that she hated music, but this is her first time in a human body listening to music. And she's like spellbound. She loves it and says, wow, you're like really great at it. And then the girl realizes like, well, I'm not going to quit after all. And I'm going to take the trombone. Yeah. And basically 
unquits without anyone telling her to to not quit. And so that's like the beginning of the turning of 22, wanting to to be coming to Earth. Kajo sees this and says, okay, now we got to fix my life and tells uh, 22 Joe to take a shower, get this old suit that barely fits, and then needs a haircut. And that's one of the things that Ken Powers talked about is that as a black man, anytime you're going to go in for an interview, and actually when he went to Pixar for the first time, he got a haircut at his yeah. barber shop. And he also talks about how, you know, he sees his barber more sometimes than his own family because you want to look good. You want to represent yourself well. And so entering the movie, Cat Joe's essentially trying to give, you know, 22 Joe uh, a haircut and botches it and like cuts it yeah. through the middle. And then that's where you have to basically fix that. And that's where the barbershop comes in. Yeah, that barbershop scene is one of my favorites, I think, in the whole movie, because you really get the sense of community of, you know, the barbershop. And, you know, there's that whole like 22 Joe goes in and kind of doesn't really know how to act because, you know, 22's never been to a barbershop before. And you have that whole scene where the barber's like, when you're in the chair, you're the boss, you know? And so 22's like, can I have one of those? And like grabs a lollipop and he's like, well, those are for kids, but, you know. I guess you can have one. And that kind of puts 22 at ease. Yeah. Yeah. And then they kind of start talking about, you know, what you should be doing in your life or what you're meant to be doing in your life. And then that's when you learn that the barber wanted to be a veterinarian. And then 22 Joe is like, but wait, you were born to be a barber, right? And he's like, no, you know, I wanted to be a veterinarian, but, you know, something got out of, I think, military his daughter, uh, something happened with his daughter mm-hmm. and he had to like, just couldn't afford to. Yeah. And, and, oh, he says barbershop school is a lot less expensive than veterinary than school. school. Yeah. And th- that's when you kind of have that moment that Joe has the realization because, you know, when they get to the barbershop, Joe's like, well, all we ever really talk about is jazz. Like when I talk to my barber, it's just mostly about music. And he kind of has the realization that his Barber does have a life and, you know, does things other than cut hair. But to Joe, up until this point, that's all he did. And so it's kind of like, why haven't I like that part where 22 is like, why haven't we ever talked about your life before? And the barber's like, well, because you never asked. And so Joe kind of has this epiphany where he's just like, oh, shit, I've just been focusing on my stuff this whole time. Des is voiced by Danelle Rawlings and then the annoying Paul by her boy, Debbie Diggs. That scene originally wasn't in the original script. And like I was saying, Ken Powers, from his personal experience, said, Joe, and this is Kemp saying this, needs to go through more authentic black spaces. Yeah. There's no bigger authentic black space than a barbershop. And another motivation that Ken Powers had to put the scene is he remembers the scene in Monsters, Inc. where Sully um, and Mike Wazowski fall into the snow and Sully kind of gets up and I think he puts a blanket around himself and he's like distraught and the hair is kind of blowing with the snow. That scene felt like an, an animation landmark to Kim Powers. It just felt like he had never seen a moment like that. And for him, he's like, we need to see black hair in yeah. a Pixar movie. And so that's another reason why he wanted the barbershop is he wanted to show what black hair look like, what it looks like coming, you know, buzz off your head. Yeah. 
And Ken Powers even talks about, and for everyone out there, hair falling, black hair falling off someone's head is an effect shot. It's not an animation shot. So all those shots were special effects. That was his motivation. He's like selfishly, Ken Powers was like, I want to see black hair in a, in a Pixar movie. And so he completely achieved that. Um, Des the barber has a Philly beard. And that was all because of Questlove. Yeah. And Questlove is from Philly. And so when he saw Des with that beard, he's like, oh my God, it's a Philly beard. That's fucking amazing. <laughs> all the album covers on the walls are for from a Queen-based rap artist. And the music that's actually playing while at their barbershop is a trap called Quest. So they were able to oh, get cool. their music in there. Yeah. And you could see lots of Knicks and Mets posters. Again, going back to Kemp Powers. After the barbershop scene, there's a moment where we focus on Terry, who Terry has come from the great uh, before. He, Terry's the counter and is supposed to count all the souls that are supposed to essentially die or go to the great beyond. And so it's Terry's mission to figure out what happened to Joe at the 22 and when they haven't, why the count is off. And so he runs into Paul, uh, who I call the shit talker and thinking that it's Joe. And so he takes him into like the middle ground again. Yeah. And uh, realizes, oh shit, it's not Joe. And so he like pulls him out back to reality and says like, Oh, like, I'm sorry, but like, you know, we can keep this between us. And he's like, just make sure you, you stay away from the processed foods while Paul's like shaking. And like, yeah. shaking. I was like, what just happened to me? <laughs> and Paul has a bag of chips. And then there's the, the, the close up shot of the chips. And, and uh, Terry takes the form of the chip. And he's like, no, but seriously, take, stay away from <laughs> yeah. the processed foods. So good. But how good is um, Rachel House's Terry? Yeah. Like, I was so good. I had never heard of her. Me either. Never seen her in anything, but like completely sold me um, mm -hmm. her as an actress and her voice of work. One of my favorite lines that she does is earlier in the movie when Terry's like, I'm going to go find out what happened to Joe in 22. He says like, I move among the shadows like a ninja. Cat Joe and 22 Joe head to the subway. Cat Joe's caught up with like, I need to get my life back and all that. And there's a guitar player playing in the subway and 22 Joe's just captivated again by the music. And the guitar player is a musician named Cody Chestnut who started off on YouTube. And I think he's pretty big now. I know Questlove is like friends with him. And he sang this song that was never officially released up until the soul soundtrack. And it was a temp track that Pete Doctor and Ken Powers had used. And they fell in love with it so much that they tried to replace it with another track. But they were like, we got to get him to do the song. And so they brought him to Skywalker Sound, recorded it, and ended up on, on, the, on the soundtrack in the film. And that's another moment, I think, for 22 to realize like that being on Earth isn't so terrible. Yeah. And, and there are very special moments in just everyday life that are pretty special. Then we get Cat Joe and 22 Joe walking along the street. It really shows off 22 kind of enjoying herself for the first time and, you know, uh, like getting the wind from the subway and kind of laying Which is down. gross, yeah. by the way. I wouldn't lay on a subway great, especially not in New York. Also, a really cool touch of the New York uh, streets is you see all the gum. Yeah. Which is completely accurate. There's yeah. a story that the production designer, when they went to New York to scout, was taking just photos of sidewalks. Yeah. 
and it's like, oh my God, there's so much gum. And so like <laughs> every time there's a sidewalk, there's just like tons of gum yeah. on it. There's a moment where 22 is having a good time and, and Cat Joe sees that and his hat flies away and he goes down to reach for it and he splits his pants open. Mm-hmm. And now we have another problem. Yeah. It segues into Kajio saying, like, what are we going to do? 6.30 is almost here. And so we got to go to my mom's place um, to have her fix my suit. But he's hesitant because his mom hasn't been really supportive of him gigging. She just wants him to have, you know, a well-paying job, Mm -hmm. stability. And obviously playing gigs is not very stable. And so he's like, here, I'm going to go to my mom, tell her about my gigging. And she's going to hate me and not going to want to help me. There's a really cool shot as they go into his mom's uh, workplace where it's like a POV shot of his hand pushing the door mm-hmm. open, revealing his mom. And she's like working on on someone's yeah. dress or whatever. When I saw that shot, I originally thought like, that's like from a horror movie. That's someone like walking into yeah, yeah, like yeah. a scary place yeah. and you're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. And in the commentary, they talk about that, that they purposely did it. There's so like I was that like, unease. Yeah, yeah, there's this uneasiness of how is this going to play out? Right. And I'm very scared to do it. Um, and so there's a conversation that happens where initially his, his mom finds out about the gig, already knows about it, isn't about it. And Cat Joe's trying to tell 22 Joe what to tell his mom. And there's that really cool moment where the conversation shifts into like Joe advocating for himself where the camera pans behind Joe's mom left to Mm -hmm. right. And now you're hearing Joe talk as Joe's voice, not as 22. And that's when Joe's like, I really want to do this. My dad really wanted to do this. Why can't I do this? Um, You know, you never really supported me. And a lot of us can relate to that conversation with our parents when we have dreams, when we have jobs of like what we really want to do and it isn't working out and our parents want the best for us, but ideally, you know, maybe are hesitant about it. And I think that's like a, a really well thought out moment Mm -hmm. to go from one place to another. And even as his mom sort of realizes, you know what, I need to support my son. The lighting changes, like the light hits her face different to the lighting of Joe on Joe's side. And yeah. that's where you could see like the shift happening happen in her. And she realizes, okay, I need to help him. And, he's, and pulls out a suit from her father or from his father. Yeah. That's a suit that Joe ends up uh, wearing to the, to the gig that night. Once Joe gets his dad suit, everything feels like it's clicking. They're going to get to the half note on time to be able to do the body swap back to normal. And there's a moment where like uh, 22 Joe's like posing outside the half note and, yeah. and Cat Joe's like, oh my God, you look great. Like put your yeah. hand behind your back and like do this, do yeah. that. And he's like posing. 22 Joe like takes a seat in front of the half note while like Cat Joe's talking about like how amazing it's going to be once it's <laughs> back into his body. And 22 Joe just kind of looks at it, at their surroundings and looks at the leaves, looks at a little girl with her dad mm-hmm. and... I think it's like a petal, right? That yeah, like, that falls off. That falls off. That's when 22 has the epiphany of like, okay, I'm ready to go to earth. Yeah. Like I, I want to stay here. And this is a beautiful place. I was wrong all along. And basically admits that to, to Cat Joe and says like, I don't want to do the body swap. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. this is what we've been building. And like, 
you were all these things that you think are beautiful are just like because everyday stuff. And because you're in my head. Pretty yeah. Much. yeah. And these aren't really sparks because 22 things like I've found my spark. Yeah. It's like I could be a walker. Yeah. Or I could be like some generic thing. And yeah. Jill's like, no, that's not, that's not. It's just regular stuff. So they meet up with Moonwind and they're about to get the seance going and Joe runs off and becomes the chase. And so they get back down to the subway. Uh, but lurking in the corners is Terry. And there's a cool sequence where uh, you think Joe's kind of running down this hallway and all of a sudden it turns into the the half between Earth and the great before. And Terry essentially catches them and then returns them to the great before. And Terry feels... Oh, and right before the, the chase sequence, everyone knows that John Ratzenberger is in every Pixar movie. Yeah. And this was the biggest one of all where people could not figure out because he doesn't do a voice. He does an actual visual cameo. And in the scene where Cat Joe's running behind uh, uh, 22 Joe, he's there in the subway entering and as Cat Joe runs out of the frame, he kind of looks to the oh, side and you okay. see him and he's in yeah, fully yeah, animated yeah. form. That's funny. So that's where his cameo is. So once Terry kind of gets Joe and 22 back to their own bodies and gets them back to the great beyond and the great before, um, they're kind of talking about how 22 finally found her spark. And this whole time, Joe's been thinking that the spark is pretty much like your purpose. And so the Jerry's are like, no, it's not your purpose. It's just kind of like what makes you want to live basically. And so wanting to go to earth. wanting to go to earth. Yeah. It's not necessarily like a life's purpose. And so she gets her, her earth pass. They kind of have a kind of fight because, you know, 22 run away and Joe's just thinking about himself again. So 22 just kind of has had it with him and is like, you know what? Just take the pass. Joe takes the pass and then he gets back into his body just in time for his gig. So he goes to the gig. He makes it in time. He has a really great show. And, you know, everything is kind of working. His mom is there. His mom and her friends are there. And the gig ends and he just kind of talks with Dorothea outside and is like, you know, I've been working for this, what feels like my entire life, and I finally have it. So now what? And Dorothea's like, well, we come back tomorrow and we do it again. And he's like, kind of has this thought where he's like, this isn't as great as I thought it was going to Or like, I've been doing all of this work and I finally get it done. And I'm just like, now what? Yeah. And that's when Dorothea kind of tells him that story. Which is related to a Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis story where Miles Davis was notorious for giving weird advice. Yeah. Kind of like Dorothea where yeah. Dorothea's story is about like, there's an older fish and a young fish. Yeah. And then the young fish is like, I want to go to the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then the older fish is like, but you are in the ocean. He's like, no, this is just water to me. Right. You know, and it's very vague. When I watched that, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, I get it, but I was still like, right. Okay. And it was inspired by this story that Herbie Hancock told where um, he was playing and he was struggling. And then Miles Davis comes up to him and says, don't play the butter notes. And Miles or Herbie was like, what does that mean? <laughs> but in a weird way, he was able to he figure it, out. Yeah. He got it. But it was, again, it was very, this cryptic advice that Miles mm -hmm. was notorious for doing. And so that's where they got that idea. Joe goes back to his apartment. And this is where he has his big epiphany moment where he goes to the piano 
and he pulls out all the things that 22 Joe had accumulated, the lollipop, yeah. the pedal, bagel, the pizza crust, yeah. uh, the Metro Pass, That's which right. I love. Which I have in my wallet. <laughs> and he starts remembering, and this is the Pete Doctor staple of yeah. like, let's do a montage remembering of all the good times. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, very relatable to Inside Out. And so he's looking at memories with his dad and his mom and- you know, fireworks on the rooftops in Manhattan and basically realizes that all these everyday things like eating a pie in a diner by himself, Mm -hmm. all these things that you would take for granted are really beautiful moments and are worth living. And it's not about the big gig, you know, it's about these smaller things and you should enjoy the, the small things. And as he's ruminating, he starts playing the piano and starts getting into the zone ends up being back in the zone and meets up with uh Moonwind. Moonwind. <laughs> and he's like, "Hey Joe, what's up? Like you're back here. What are you doing back here?" And he's yeah. like, "I got to go talk to 22 because he also realizes while he's ruminating through his own life, sort of realizes what kind of a jerk he was to 22, to 22 and yeah. telling 22 all these moments in life don't really matter, that they need to be big moments when it's not true." And so he's trying to find for 22 and uh graham norton tells him uh yeah see 22 is a lost soul joe's running after her and they get to a point where they go through where she her box and then they cuts through terry's getting an award that he gives himself yeah. and jerry's like and hey, here's this <laughs> award that terry basically told us to give to you and then like yeah. and it comes 22 as like a lost soul yeah Joe's like, wait, 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 I figured out, I figured out like what I've been trying to tell you. And basically as, as, uh, Joe's about to tell 22, this 22 eats Joe. Yeah. And now they're like in inside her. Yeah. And yeah. you're seeing all her mentors, Abraham Lincoln, basically telling her you're terrible, you're unmotivated, like you're a lost cause. Yeah. And then there's a moment where and Joe's seeing all this and then Joe sees himself basically telling 22, like, these aren't big moments. Like, these are just generic <laughs> moments stupid. in life. You're stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just really beating herself up. So from there, Joe's kind of trying to figure out a way to get 22 back, to get her out of this kind of um, loop of thinking she's not good enough, which is why she becomes a lost soul in the first place is because she keeps telling her these things and then obsesses over them. And that's, you know, how you become a lost soul. So he gives her the petal that fell off of the tree. And in doing this, she kind of realizes what she's been doing and she kind of comes back to herself. He basically says, the last box is in your purpose. It's when you're ready to start living. Yeah. That that's, that's your spark. And so 22 comes back and Joe gives 22 the earth sticker. She's still doubtful. She's like, I don't know if I can do this. And then Joe says, well... I'll come with you as far as I can go. And so they go into the kind of the abyss that leads to earth Yeah, and they're kind of skydiving down and they're holding hands. And then there reaches a point where they have to let go of each other and Joe kind of lets go and then kind of sees, you know, 22 go down to earth and he goes back to the great before and the Jerry's are like, wow, like you're the first person to, to help. Yeah. 22 finer spark and congratulations but now it's time for you to to go back to the great beyond and so he's going up the escalators and right halfway 
the one of the Jerry's comes like, you know, we've been thinking a lot and we realize that we want to give you a second chance. He's like, fantastic, like awesome. <laughs> what I love about that too is that Joe really learns his lesson. Yeah. And it isn't like, oh, I'm gonna go back to Earth and be a musician or be yeah. a teacher or whatever. It's very ambiguous because Jerry's like, so what are you gonna do with your life? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't know, but I know I'm gonna live every minute of it. And that ending was very controversial with Pixar animators because you had two camps. You had Joe lives and Joe dies. Oh, okay. So there was a very there was a, a variation where Joe people wanted Joe, Joe to die. die. And yeah. Ken Powers was initially on that side where like Joe needs to die. Yeah, because he's fulfilled whatever he was trying to do. His, his life. Too. Yeah. But the turning point was why did we go on this journey for mm-hmm. Joe to learn this lesson and, and just not die anyway. be able to do anything yeah. about it, you know? And so that would shifted Ken Power's opinion and they ended up going with that ending, but they kept it vague of like not specifying, like I said, what he's gonna what do. he's going to do with his life. And the same thing with 22 where you don't know, you don't know where she ends up really. or it could be a he or, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, right. or what uh 22 could turn into. Mm-hmm. So I love the ambiguity of the ending. Um, and it was a very bold choice, but yeah. I think it, I think they got it right. As the credits roll, there was an idea to have Terry talk shit about like every production. Oh, that would have been funny. Did you watch to the very end? No, I don't think so. After the last title card rolls, Terry says like, what are you guys still doing here? Like, oh, get the hell right. out of yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was going to be that about animators, like animators who needs them. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, well, I need them yeah. to animate me and stuff like that. <laughs> but they ditched that idea. The final title card reads created and produced at Pixar Animation Studios, Emeryville, California, and in homes at least six feet away from each other throughout the Bay Area. The film was originally going to be released on June 19th, but because of COVID, that obviously didn't happen. So it got pushed to November 20th. And as I was listening to the uh, the commentary, they talked about how the commentary was recorded on October 2nd. And they still didn't know if it was going to be released on November wow. 20th. So they were like, yeah, uh, we don't know if the movie's ever going to come oh out God. at this point. That's crazy. Which was depressing because after listening to it and listening to all the production mm-hmm. fiascos yeah. and how much time went into it to realize like that it may never even see the light of day was just like ridiculous. Yeah. And obviously it came out December 25th. Um, but just to know, to record the commentary of a movie that, you don't that you've know. worked your heart and yeah. soul and you still don't know is just like insane. The reception of the movie was mostly positive. Pixar does preview audience screenings for all their movies. However, this was the first time they did an all black audience preview. That audience ended up loving the movie and it was a big relief to all the creators involved, especially trying to not be problematic and mm-hmm. trying to just get, you know, black culture, get it right. It was like a complete relief for them. Soul premiered at the London Film Festival on October 11th, 2020. So before it was released on Disney Plus, that's the first crowd that saw it. Although I can't really think of how it was released. I I Because obviously there weren't people there. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it was online. Maybe it was a screener. The week that uh, Soul was going to come out on Disney Plus, subscriptions went up 13%. And it was only behind Hamilton and Wonder Woman as like, one of the more popular releases streaming uh, that week. Although it was critically successful, 
there were a few critics that brought up the whole idea of black character being mm-hmm. redefined into something else. And yeah. a few critics called it out on it. But I mean, everyone's going to have their opinion. Yeah. You know, you have the right to do that. <clears throat> but I, for the story that they told, I think it, it worked. Um, but there were few people that objected to it. Like we talked about, we wanted to do this as for Oscar week. It did end up winning best animated feature as well as best score and also won the BAFTA for those two categories, even though it was still nominated for best sound, but it lost um, that category. And that pretty much wraps up soul. So what are your final thoughts on, on the film and, and what it, what spoke to you the most? On the first time I saw it, I, I don't know. I just didn't, I liked it enough, I think, but it wasn't like, wow, this movie's amazing. You know, I just kind of felt meh about it for what, like 22 I, for whatever. Meh. Yeah. Like 22 for whatever reason. And the second time I saw it, I liked it a little bit more. Like it definitely has its, its moments. Like I said, that scene that they do in the barbershop is probably my favorite scene in, in the whole movie. Cause they do such a good job of setting up, like I said, really making you feel the community feeling, the feeling of community, the sense of community. And you know, when they, uh, talk about the barber's like life story. Like they give him so much story in like the five minutes right. that you meet him. And so there are things about it that I really like. Like you said, like the animation is really good. A lot of the scenes are really, really well done, especially with the instruments and, you know, the playing of the instruments and all that stuff is really well done. Would I call it like one of my favorites? Probably not, <laughs> but, but I liked it. Like I, I liked it. I definitely did like it. Um, what about you? I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I watched Inside Out and I try to watch Up because I still haven't seen it, but I just ran out of time. But I I feel like Inside Out sort of set the precedence for this movie to exist. I don't think it could have happened any other way. And I think with Inside Out, I f- definitely felt more emotional. Like the scene, the scene that like broke my heart was the imaginary friend when they're trying to go oh, get out of the yes. depths and he's basically self-sacrificed yeah. to get that. Yeah. It was like <laughs> terrible. It was great, but like awful. And so inside out hit me hard in the feels. Mm-hmm. And I think why I like, uh, soul a lot more is because it isn't as emotional, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay. But I also relate to it more. Then Inside Out, I mean, I, I mean, we all have emotions. Yeah. I get that. But I think with our music background and our history with being in band and, you know, that idea also of obsessing about, I want this to be my career. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that too. And being so hyper-focused hyper on one thing that you get lost. And I love all that ideology of not even necessarily about the great beyond or the great before. But that idea of like that you can easily get lost in a lot of things mm-hmm. by obsessing over them. Yeah. Not necessarily because you don't care. I think when I realized that part of the movie, that's what really spoke to me. And that's why I, I feel like I really enjoyed it. As well as what you talked about. The, I think the animation is brilliant. Maybe my favorite animated Pixar movie. Um, and the lighting and and the camera work and it's so weird to talk about it that way as an animated movie. Yeah, yeah. But it it just I don't know how else to describe it. It's right. just it looks brilliant and and the camera work and the direction there was was really well done. And 
And also just the fact that it is a black lead and it's an inter- international cast mm-hmm. and that they were able to make it work. You know, it's a, a movie about jazz and there's electronic music. Right, and right. You have a barbershop scene and, yeah. and just all the things that we talked about on paper would sound like super complicated. Yeah. Especially nowadays to pull off. And mm-hmm. I think they pulled it off really well. And I think that's that's why I, I enjoyed it a lot more the more and more that I watched yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. So would you think... That it still gets us in our feels. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, I don't think it's as extreme, even yeah. as like I talked about Jesse in Toy yeah. Story 2. But it's enough. And I think they dialed it back enough. I think so, too. Where it's and I appreciated that. Not <laughs> so much in your face. You're not a mess. And you don't feel like you're being forced to feel like. Right. Exactly. Everything at yeah. once. So I, I don't I don't really buy into I think maybe leading up to this movie, I would buy the formulaic totally manipulation You're just part. Like, Great, <laughs> but I think this one did enough things differently that they're onto a new venture. In ending our podcast, as per usual, we're gonna go over our double feature picks. So, what would you pick for your double feature with Soul? I think mine is pretty obvious, but maybe it isn't. My double feature is Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh, that's a good one. I watched it in middle school. So I haven't seen that in forever. The reason I saw it is because I was a band kid and it's about a band director, again, struggling to write his great symphony. God, that movie's emotional. Yeah, but it also <laughs> has some rough parts. I think it does. You know, if I'm like thinking... where he like falls in love with one of his students, students right? and writes a whole piece of music about, I think, Rowena. And hides it from his wife and she, yeah, it's, it's not perfect. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. And obviously I don't like that part, but the rest of the movie is very similar. And like the idea of that you're obsessed with, I'm going to be a music composer, but I settled as a music teacher, but that ends up being more rewarding than what I was really trying to go out for. And the whole school, he spends like his whole lifetime there. and, And the ending scene is they do play his symphony that he's been working on. And yeah, it's a tearjerker for sure. Um, and I think it's a perfect double feature for, for Soul. Mine is what we've been talking about all night is Inside Out. That would be my double feature, which actually I did the other day. Um, only because, not because they're both Pixar movies or whatever, but be, because they both kind of touch on the same subjects and make really complicated subjects digestible. Like, you know, with Inside Out, you're dealing with feelings like different kinds of emotions and with soul you're dealing with death and kind of finding your purpose in life or finding something that makes you want to keep living and so it's all these difficult complex concepts that are kind of just made really simple and really easy to understand in in both movies and so i think that would be a really good double feature cool so that about wraps up our coverage on the oscar winning soul we can say that now yeah If you want to follow us on our socials or if you want to suggest more movies for us to cover that we haven't covered yet or maybe that we haven't thought about yet, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at CutMoviePod. You'll be able to see the video episode of this on our YouTube. Coming up next time on our next episode, we are into baseball season, which is the only sport we watch, really. We're big Dodger fans. So since we're in baseball season, that's kind of going to be the hint for the next episode. It's, it's going to be a baseball, baseball movie. movie. It's a baseball movie. But basically. there are many great baseball movies. Yeah. So it's so going to be your job to figure it out. Which one? And also we're still doing the 
hitting with 100 subscribers, 100 followers on Instagram and Twitter. If you're one of those, we're going to do your movie. So I don't know how many followers we're at right now, but we're not anywhere near 100. So (laughs) again, tell your friends, tell your buddies, tell your film lovers out there to subscribe, like, comment, because we really want to hear from you guys. Thanks for listening and watching, everybody. Cut. That's a wrap. 